0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Today, talking about Byung-Chul Han's, if I pronounce that right, uh, "Topology of Violence," which is a pretty interesting book, uh, obviously because I'm doing it. But, anyways, before jumping into it, you can find this on Instagram at theory. Or find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, or you can find this on any place that you want to get uh, podcasts. Or if you're doing it on podcast form, but for some reason want to listen to it on YouTube, you can check it out there. Uh, and you can contribute if you want via patreon or paypal if you can't you know monetarily any like comment subscription would help a lot share that would obviously all of that helps a lot um, and i'd like to thank boz honrick james john Eust, julio Killswitch, matt sebastian and ashley who have all been very helpful in keeping this going at least at the, the consistent rate it has been and hopefully will keep going. So without further ado here, let's jump right into Hans Topology of Violence. So this book is divided into two big parts. The first part tackles and it takes up about the first half of the book tackles what he calls the macrophysics of power, whereas the second part take takes on what he calls the microphysics of power. But before even moving into those, he has an introduction that lays out kind of the trajectory of the book itself. So to start out the introduction, he makes the claim, pretty big claim, that violence never disappears. So it just changes. And I should say, to just comment briefly on the title, topology means roughly shape, just the kind of shape of violence, the way it changes and transforms. Now, it's go look up the word if you want a more nuanced definition, but just as a kind of working title now or a kind of working understanding just understanding it as shape works. So he says that violence never disappears, so it just kind of changes. But what we see in the condition of modernity and following it, essentially, for him, pushed violence from what he calls the real into the virtual. Now, when he refers to the virtual, he's not just talking about, like, computers or televisions or anything like that, like in the way that maybe someone like Baudiard might might suggest even which I would add the caveat, he doesn't really, but you know that we might understand him to say. So what he says, or how he kind of characterizes this virtual violence is as follows. He says, martial violence is currently giving way to an anonymized, desubjectified, systemic violence that conceals itself as such because it becomes one with society. So the term virtual is kind of a misnomer, so we should be careful here because he's really just talking about more of a systemic shift that happens to follow the flows and movements of capitalism not necessarily linked to you know the commanding virtuality of our daily lives where we you know more of our lives are mediated by technology than anything else that plays a part but he's really talking about something else something something broader going on so he identifies this as a pretty broad shift and this is the shift from what he calls the macrophysics of power to the microphysics where he says that the macro physics of power are characterized by a kind of outward hostility against some other, you know, someone or something that you saw as exterior as other, as different to yourself. And for him, this embraced a certain logic of negativity. And he lionizes this. He kind of romanticizes this a little bit because it is out of this negativity and it is out of this distinction between self and other that newness, that possibility can emerge for Han, but we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail as we go on. Now, he contrasts that with what we find today, what he calls the microphysics of power, or he, he tries to understand as through this microphysical lens, that exercises, that is, it tries to conjure away the negative in favor of the positive. So this gets get, gets rid of, excuse me, sorry, this gets rid of the negativity of the other, in favor of the positive, that arises from the spamification of language, excessive communication and information, and the accumulation of language, communication, and information. Which is a weird sentence, I don't know like how th- those things are different, but anyways. So repression, then, is something that still exists, which is difficult at times to understand, because on the one hand, he wants to say that repression has gone away in favor of like pure positivity, uh, pure potentiality, but now, he, you know, there are moments when he says that it is that uh, positivity, that potentiality, that actually represses us, which seems difficult to reconcile at times. But he says that repression no longer now comes from the outside, from this kind of exterior, what might have been at one time a kind of sovereign um, sovereign other, like a king or tyrant, despot, monarch, anything like that, that exerted its, their reign, their power over people. Now, what we see is people repressing themselves from the inside. So, there's a kind of de- democratic repression going on where we all contribute in our own repression. Now, so far, he's only laid this out in two broad uh, movements that is, the macrophysical movement and the microphysical. But now he further uh, kind of taxonomizes these movements into three other movements where it starts with sovereign power, disciplinary power, and then what he calls like the achievement uh, society or the microphysics of power. So these are the three movements where under sovereignty, people experienced uh, decapitation. That was the kind of punishment that they underwent. In the disciplinary society, he says that people underwent deformation and what he calls now the achievement society, people undergo depression, where he characterizes depression as a product of this achievement society, this this society in which we have just given over to pure positivity, positivity pure potentiality, pleasure, everything like that. So we're gonna get into this a little bit more because he's gonna bring up uh, figures like uh, Deleuze and, and Foucault to talk about disciplinary society and sovereign society, and then he positions his, you know, he makes his case clear that we've moved into this new achievement society phase as, I, I guess, that the next, the next step in this process. Now, here we move into the first half, the kind of first chunk of the book, titled The Macrophysics of Violence. Now, of course, e- well, of course, each of these parts, the macrophysical, macrophysics of violence and the microphysics of violence, are each broken down into chapters. So we're going to go through each of the chapters here starting with chapter one, titled The uh, Topology of Violence. So he begins by thinking about the way that Greek society thought of torture as something that was necessary. It It was a necessary component of society to keep society running smoothly. So the body in Greek society for Han was the site of pain. So if someone did something wrong, if someone had to be sacrificed for whatever reason, their body was what, Uh, was inflicted with pain the pain was directed against the body whereas today he says that all violence is directed against the psyche so in the pre-modern times as he kind of characterizes it like in greek society all the way up to you know insert century here 17th century maybe 18th century all the way up to that point violence was the kind of lingua franca it was the kind of common language of power where if you had power, you exerted it through violence, and you demonstrated your power through violence. Now what happened was that, and this is all just Foucault, and I'll say as a kind of an aside, if you, if you read Foucault, I don't really know why you need to read this, but it's, it, it is in many ways a summary of what Foucault says. So there's a transition from these kind of overt demonstrations of power what Foucault calls the kind of society of the, spe- or the spectacle of the scaffold, sorry, where people were killed in, in town squares. And that was a, a means by which the sovereign, you know, king or monarch or whatever, would demonstrate their power. But that left them open to a kind of vulnerability in that their power being put on display made it clear who, uh, who wielded that power. And then they could be uh, susceptible to revolt or, or insurgency or anything like that. Now, in the shift into modernity, at least how Han characterizes it, violence is then, um, it's moved from these kind of overt, clearly lit places and placed instead into the kind of dark recesses of society, like the prison, like the, the, um, the mental uh, institution, that's not the right term, uh, you know, the care of mental health or anything like that, that takes the control of people outside of their being directly controlled removes it from that and makes it something that is that happens at a much more um, kind of um, capillary level. At least that's one of the kind of key terms, where it's kind of diluted into the very fabric of society at large. So this is a transition from violence in a in a in a visible way to an invisible way which marks a certain topological transformation of violence. Now what we see here is the retention or the the maintenance of a kind of negativity within violence. So violence is still inflicted upon the body, but in the spectacle of the scaffold, what we saw was that, you know, the executioner in the moment of violence inflicted the, you know, the sovereign's will. They stood in for the sovereign because the sovereign wasn't themselves going to inflict this violence. It had to be done by a kind of proxy by someone else uh, and then the way that this manifests itself in the in the modern age is that you have you know the prison guard you, you know you have the the school teacher you have the doctor that discipline bodies that kind of exert their force on bodies to shape them in a certain way so in that way han maintains that there is the the maintenance of this negativity of this distinction between self and other. Now, the kind of the most effective component of this disciplinary society, and this is something that Foucault picks up on, is that it renders um, discipline a process that occurs on the inside, where we no longer need someone watching us for us to be uh, kept in line. We discipline ourselves, and that makes power all the more effective. And this has, for him, and he just makes this comment kind of at the end of the chapter, a relationship to the capitalist modes of production in which there is no clear figurehead. You know, we are all part of this system. The distinction between even classes isn't nearly as neat as it once was. And it seems as though we are all subject to the system in the same way. Now, we move from here into the next chapter titled The Archaeology of Violence. So from where... Whence does violence emerge? He presents Freud's idea here that, you know, violence comes from a kind of innate death drive, what he calls uh, thanatos, thanatos. So that's, you know, one possible explanation. And he doesn't spend a lot of time really thinking about Freud here. He just kind of presents that. And instead, he focuses his attention to uh, the philosopher René Girard, who is a French philosopher who thinks about things like sacrifice and, uh, you know, um, kind of ancient ritual, ritualistic modes of violence and stuff, and I find them super interesting. But Han recounts in Girard that violence can be explained by what he calls a mimetic rivalry. So mimetic being like copying. So uh, a rival rivalry that is induced by a desire to have what someone else has. You want to be like them, and it's from there that violence emerges. So if there are if there's any kind of scarcity in resources you will fight to have the resources of another. So for Girard, violence is just a means by which to attain these other things. Now, um, Han has a problem with that because for Han, violence is a thing enacted in itself. That is, with violence comes certain uh, possibilities, comes certain like uh, social prestige, any, you know anything like that that should be accounted for. And it is a way to essentially uh, kind of accrue power. So violence was used to garner power. And he says that this presents the roots of a kind of capitalist mindset in archaic people, which, you know, the some Marxists out there are probably twitching hearing that because, you know, there is a tendency in capitalist apologists to be like, oh, well, capitalism is natural. Look at how it relates to our history and this kind of competitive, uh, our competitive nature. And therefore, we are just following our kind of competitive destiny or our kind of biology by submitting to capitalism. So I'll let you stew in that anger. I feel you, but let's keep going on here. Now, these, you know, pre-historical people would have used things like sacrifice as a means to deter violence, But that was in itself just more violence, right? So it was like a way to ostensibly manage violence by using violence. So it it served a kind of like immunological principle. So it was a means by which to inoculate or to to almost vaccinate uh, a people from violence was by integrating in controlled doses violence into that system. he says that one protected oneself from violence by actively wielding violence. So this of course happens, you know, on a social uh, kind of societal uh, level with something like sacrifice, but also like by being the most violent, you could deter people from wanting to attack you because people were scared of you. And the only reason that I am right here with this microphone and you're listening to this is because our ancestors were better at killing than other ancestors. So we have, you know, our roots are violent ones. Now, there were even some cases of like indigenous communities, and he provides the example of the um, the indigenous people of the Mar- I'm not going to pronounce this right, Mar- Marquesas, maybe islands, who believed in a kind of energy that was transferred in the act of violence. And this was called mana or mana, maybe. So if a vanquisher Defeat someone, then they actually garner that person's mana. They take their, their kind of essence from them. Now, because of that, violence didn't really follow a kind of general economy of equivalence where there was like a kind of order to it or, or, or a kind of system. Violence was just almost conducted for the sake of it. It, it had no direction. It was, is, in his words, undirected. So, like, if someone killed someone of our tribe, you know, the perhaps rational, and using that in air quotes, rational thing to do would just be to inflict harm on that person. But no, it was a matter of killing everyone that was around that didn't belong to the tribe. So he makes the case here, and I I kind of scratch my head at this one, where he says that because violence was almost undirected, that is, it didn't follow any kind of principles or codes or kind of conduct or anything like that, then these societies were actually able to ward off the formation of hierarchies. Now this idea is present as well in um, Deleuze and Guattari's work, especially in um, *A Thousand Plateaus*. And one of the I've actually done with a buddy of mine one of the, the the chapter in which they talk about this on this channel. So you can go check that out if you want, titled "Apparatus of Capture." But Han is making the case here that because violence was so unsystematic that these Ancient people were actually able to ward off the formation of hierarchies and classes and/or castes, any kind of like system. But the reason that this makes me kind of scratch my head is that he recognizes the existence of something like sacrifice, which would imply the existence of like a priestly class or some kind of class that held, that wielded the power to confer on the sacrificial victim a kind of sacred status right? Because they couldn't just kill indiscriminately. There, you know, there had to be a procedure for it to actually be sacrifice. So I don't really know what, like, he seems to contradict himself. But anyways, I could be, you know, pulling at straws, splitting, splitting hairs. I don't know. Now, the way that he kind of justifies this claim is that if someone garnered mana, this didn't make them equivalent to the way that, you know, we might have had a relationship to sovereigns or or monarchs or anything like that, because the acquisition of mana didn't necessarily mean that you were going to attain a kind of godlike sovereign status. It just meant people weren't going to screw with you. But that still doesn't explain the who would be doing like sacrifices. But anyways, I'm, yeah. Uh, So let's continue. Violence was in that way impersonal. It was just done not for personal reasons, because to be a person implies a kind of system, right? It was just like violence just running rampant. Now, when we enter a new phase, a kind of new topological formation, let's say the one, the disciplinary society, the way in which the person who inflicts violence is treated is much different. So instead of them being a kind of wielder of mana, someone who has accrued all this mana from all of these vanquished people, Defeated people. Now they are seen as a guilty person. So the person that inflicts violence is looked down upon as being aberrant, being a kind of uh, a residual or a relic of a time long gone. You know, as Foucault describes it at one point, the person that commits violence is treated like an animal. You know, they stand outside of the rational social order, and therefore they they are treated like we perceive and treat animals and the role of punishment against the guilty person is to bring an end to violence that is the kind of chaotic form of violence and of course it supplants that with a kind of state-sanctioned systemic violence and here we see it's apotheosis with like uh, drone strikes that have this precision killing capacity which of course is fine like that that's a good form of violence we don't we don't question that form of violence because it you know it follows the plan It follows the system. So it's in that way that like violence hasn't disappeared today, right? It just manifests itself in different forms like drone strikes. The example he gives is the nuclear arms race. You know, we still maintain these kinds of relations, these these violent relations, but they are, you know, because they're state sanctioned, they aren't credited with being as chaotic or as uh, undirected as they once were. And whereas at one point, violent people garnered mana from the people they, they defeated, now we garner, we kind of accumulate capital, which, you know, through the exploitation of various people, through the uprooting of ty- entire cultures and civilizations, we uh, garner, we accumulate capital. Now, under this, under capitalism, life is reduced to a kind of bare life, and we compensate with this, he says, with, the, with hyperactivity and acceleration. And in the face of that, he almost prescribes that we should find more room for more more chaos, you know, not this kind of hyperactive, um, orderly society. And from there, we move into the third chapter, the psyche of violence. So the psyche of violence, what goes on in the mind? And here again, he turns to Freud to say that the psyche in Freud is a system of negativity. That is, it is constantly kind of... Um, Wracked by the antagonistic tensions of instinctual, uh, instinctual impulses and their repression. So the psyche maintains a relationship between a self and an other, where the negative is associated with the other. So the ego is an other to the superego, the id is another to the, to the ego, and the id is obviously uh, an other to the superego. But even within either of these, uh, any of these uh, kind of broad components of the psyche, take the ego for example there's an othering occurring within that Where in the case of melancholia where if someone experiences a loss a loss of a loved one one of the ways that they might cope with that is by actually simul almost emulating or simulating that person in themselves so the what you know one of the best examples would be Hitchcock's um psycho where uh Norman Bates spoiler alert becomes his mother more or less uh, and what this represents for han is a antagonism between a self and an internalized other and there's this tension then at the core of the egotistical psyche or the ego component of the psyche now han reads in freud freud's description of a kind of s- this psychic apparatus as a re- as a repressive um, as a repressive regime and he locates that that it is only possible in repressive societies, it's kind of an extension of that, those societies, in line with sovereignty or the disciplinary society. And that what we see today isn't the same kind of repression but rather an opening up of possibility with the emergence uh, and with it emerges a kind of new psychic apparatus, one not founded on repression but one founded on emancipation. But Han is clear that this, this new development isn't just pure emancipation or pure possibility. He says that the dialectic of freedom entails the development of new constrictions. And some of them, as he comes to say, will be like the negative results of like depression or anxiety, um, burnout, things like that. So in this world, because we don't have a relationship to the other in the same way, we can't like in the way that he described the ego and the case I gave of uh, psycho, you can't internalize the other, and then there can be that kind of antagonism. And it is through that antagonism that a certain new possibility for yourself might might emerge. Without this relationship to the other, he says that no stable conception of the self can uh, can form because there is no one to confer us with selfness. So this is, for those that might not know, you know, this is coming right out of Hegel in the phenomenology of spirit, where it is for Hegel, It doesn't make sense to think that you can actually understand who you are as a self or, you know, even acknowledge your selfness unless you are among others that can recognize your selfness. So, for example, if I was just born into a place that didn't have any sentient beings, that was just uh, some kind of land filled with rocks and trees, no wildlife, nothing like that. I will not develop the capacity for self-reflection. And the reason for that is that I will not be able to review anyone who also might have self-reflection. Because self-reflection only happens when I recognize myself being seen and then I can say, what if I turn my own gaze, my own subjectivity then, back upon myself as though I was an object because someone else is seeing me as an object so I must not be this kind of center of the universe that I think myself to be I might be constituted or I am constituted in that other person seeing me as something to be seen as an object as an other to them so then I develop the capacity to turn back upon myself and see myself as an object through my lens as a subject and it is this very um There's a kind of careful tension here between the subject and object that provides the condition for self-consciousness, which allows for movement and development and change. Now, if we lose this kind of connection to the other, we lose this possibility of the self. So that's what Han is saying here when he says that uh, without the other, there's no stable conception of the self can form because there is no one to confer us with selfness. So then here he talks about like depression, ADHD, and burnout, things that aren't brought about by a, by a conflict with the other, but by an excess amount of positivity, an excess amount of selfness. Now we add to this the kind of growing what he calls virtualization and digitization of the world that is contributing to the total disappearance of the real, which would have been our last kind of bastion of resistance against this total realm of positivity, because the virtual for him is a place of pure possibility, pure potentiality that isn't restricted by anything. Now, the violence that we inflict against ourselves in this in this uh, epoch, in this era, um, is all the more pernicious because he says that its victims imagine themselves to be free. That is, we do not at all question it because it, we are we experience relative pleasure, I guess, as far as the body goes. Um, of course. And it's important to mention that, like, you know, people still suffer, like, especially when we consider, like, poverty or racism or sexism, things that are very much alive today, or, like, sweatshop labor and exploitation or war or, like, terrorism. Like, these things are not good. And I think that Han is very, uh, he's, he's myopic, That is, he's just like, he's like, no, all that's, that's just actually positivity too. Like, is it really though? Is it really? Anyways, I might not be being fair. Uh, That puts us here into chapter four, the politics of violence. And this is going to be broken down into a few sub chapters. The first one being chapter 4.1, friend and enemy. So he says that the friend enemy binary is a pretty new construct and it has a, a kind of indubitable relationship to uh, our political system and it it varies that is it, it is in contrast to the old distinction of like good and evil that permeated previous uh systems or like the binary of beautiful and ugly and now he presents the work of carl schmidt and aligns himself with carl schmidt which is not a great thing to do <laughs> schmidt uh just look him up um he is a not a great uh kind of philosophical track record but he invokes evokes the work of carl schmidt who proposes that um, to suggest that the earlier binary constructions that is between like good and evil beautiful and ugly could be said to have been factual designations whereas the present friend enemy distinction is an existential uh, these are existential categories they aren't factual and then for schmidt when politics enters the scene, that is, when we move from these earlier systems into politics, we move from the factual to the irrational. And this is why war, for Schmitt, is never a rational um, uh, mode of conduct, because war exists alongside politics. And uh, violence can't be mitigated with the political because violence is what subtends the political. It exi- it, it creates the foundations for the political, and Schmidt likes this because it galvanizes a kind of group identity of like friend and enemy, where you you know new lines of affiliation can be can be drawn uh, between you know your friends against common foes. So Schmidt then would not like a kind of global order, one in which you know the distinction between friend and enemy has been erased in favor of a kind of totalized uh, economic or political system. So Hahn uses Schmidt's idea here to oppose the present situation of what he calls, you know, the achievement society or the effects of like globalized uh, uh, capitalism to say that, you know, Schmidt might have had a point in that these earlier formations of the political were much more uh, kind of conducive to um, a formation of selfness, a formation of identity. And with that, you know, the possibility to um, realize uh, yourself and to become, to, to be a fulfilled person. Whereas in the achievement society, people are expected to be flexible and not to kind of assume an identity. So in Hans' words, the loss of stable, verifiable models of identity and orientation results in psychic instability and character disturbances. So achievement society then has a direct kind of association with capitalism that too has no kind of um, true affiliation with any people or land or culture or anything. and just goes where money is. It doesn't have an identity. And it is in that way. Um, it's it's competitive, sure, but it isn't conflictual as the old dynamic that Schmidt lays out was. But like we, you know, we, we shouldn't maybe really be taking Schmidt all too seriously because like there are certainly the fascist undertones there that we can't ignore but the the point is that um potentially there's a greater risk presented by this globalized advanced capitalism than in these earlier than what we saw in these earlier formations so and you know han kind of (laughs) uh I don't know. Kind of saves himself from falling into this Schmittian hole of fascism by saying that this loss of the other has some negative consequences, like xenophobia or like kind of reactionary conservative um, responses. Because you know, it, it anything that is seen as different, not like other, uh, is then treated as another, and it's kind of a way by which people in this system can reinvigorate the sense of otherness, because they know subconsciously or unconsciously that their identity of selfness has to be in distinction to an other. So they kind of simulate this otherness, which they then attack, or they simulate it by attacking it, right? They scapegoat, um, you know, immigrants or, you know, people in different parts of the world, just a kind of general principle of xenophobia in order to convince them that they haven't lost this sense of self because they still have this relationship to otherness. So uh, Hahn then says that this kind of system that we find ourselves in is not conducive to friendship because friendship exists, it, friendship bridges selves and others. What we see now is kind of tolerance, which is just kind of a blind acceptance of, of difference that absolves it erases otherness where he writes that the politics of friendship generates a maximum amount of solidarity from a minimum amount of commonality because a a real friendship and this i think can extend and who am i to say but this is just my opinion um and this could say about like romantic relationships in, in in that the most fruitful ones are the ones in which you are challenged and you are challenged by being in um in Placed in proximity to an other, where if you just surround yourself with people like yourself, you are not gonna have these fruitful relationships because you won't be able to respect the others and you probably won't be able to respect yourself as having your own identity. But that, you're not here for my opinion. Uh, Here, moving into the next subchapter of chapter four, titled Law and Violence. So he says that violence is not tantamount to law, right? So violence and law are different. When a legal system depends on violence, it, is, it, it does so when it is in a very fragile state. And for him, law is actually what tries to curb violence, which he already mentioned earlier when talking about how um, the legal system in response to these kind of chaotic form, forms of violence tries to mitigate that, tries to ameliorate that tendency. Now, this is at odds with the work of Walter Benjamin, who views law as inherently violent because it is preceded by domination and one class commanding other classes. So for Han, law actually tries to curb violence, tries to curb negativity, which he doesn't like. But then for Benamine, Benamine is like, no, law and violence are are dependent upon one another. So Han then says to Benemin, no, you're totally forgetting, or you're totally missing, like what is actually occurring here. We are seeing the exorcism of violence. We are not seeing it be erected in proportion to uh, the emerging legal systems and laws. Now, Hahn recounts that in Benjamin, Benjamin puts forward, and I believe this is in his piece titled The Critique of Violence, in which Benjamin puts forward the idea that um, before the law, there was what was he called a kind of divine violence. Now, this divine violence is the violence that is perhaps inherent to what we know in humanity, the kinds of violence we see before the law. And then what we see happen with the law is the kind of mutation of that violence into a very, you know, one directed in a very systemic or systematic way between like classes, between oppressor and oppressed. And for Han, he says that this divine violence is ultimately nothing more than an imaginary authority that can be called on by any ruling power to legitimate itself, So Benjamin makes a mistake here for Han in that he finds a way to, with this introduction of divine violence, that he opposes to legal violence as being like almost a better form. Uh, Which, I'm just taking Han's word on this. I feel like there's more to what Benjamin says, but I'm not going to get into that now. Um, Han says that Benjamin perhaps um, unconsciously or... or, um, it's another word. didn't mean to do it, doesn't mean to do this, but he inadvert- in- inadvertently um, finds a way to justify all violence by saying that there is this kind of innate, true violence. But this innate kind of true violence for Benjamin, he says, and very mysteriously, he says that it doesn't spill blood and it disrupts all legal violence that he says spills blood. It's kind of uh, legal violence is really the violent kind of violence. Uh, And Derrida also takes Benjamin to task on this because Derrida is like, well, um, the kind of violence we saw in its most systemic form would probably be what happened in the Holocaust, which was a bloodless, in in most of the cases, uh, was a kind of bloodless violence with gas chambers that was just a pure systematic liquidation of people, just their kind of erasure off the face of the earth. They they were like reduced to less than human because they're like biological functions of like bleeding when you die if you are murdered, um if if you are in fact murdered, in violently, um, yeah that that is effaced in in favor of a kind of pure systematic violence. So Derrida's like Benjamin, you're kind of like laying the foundation for this perfect non-violent form of killing that is probably the most pernicious that we could ever see because it just erases people off the earth. So Han wants to you know, look at society not as something that contains more violence, like Benjamin says, but as something that actually tries to get rid of violence, tries to get rid of negativity. So like Benjamin, um, Han takes aim at Giorgio Agamben, who tries to make the same case that violence is implicitly associated with uh, the political or with the kind of legal systems. And Han says that, you know, Benjamin can be forgiven for thinking that violence is still present in this system uh, because, you know, he was still living at a time when violence was, at least for Han, uh, still formed part of negativity to that system. Agamben, he says, has no excuse. Agamben living in this, still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. Um, Agamben has no excuse uh, for thinking that, you know, negativity still exists in this world. And therein, for Han, lies the anachronism of his thought. And because of this oversight on the part of Agamben to recognize positivity, you know, not just focusing on negativity, uh, he fails to see what Han calls the conformity of consensus, which seems like a redundant statement, but he's trying to say that the, the kind of violence that is found within positivity or within consensus and the state of exception which is uh, in a in Agamben, the state of a exception is the moment when like kind of all laws can be suspended um, and a kind of sovereign power is put into place like with uh, military rule or something like that in, in the face of like a kind of tragedy or terrorism or something um, where, you know, all laws are suspended and people can just be like arrested without, you know, notice or people are tortured or beaten and, and all of this, this stuff. Hahn says that that doesn't happen if we really exist in the what he calls the immanence of the same. That is the perpetualness of sameness. Because there is no distinction between self and other, between sovereign and you know citizen. And that puts us here into chapter 5, the macro logic of violence. So he says here that power and violence are not the same. Power is conducive to hierarchy and structure, uh, while violence disturbs all these structures. So people use violence to attain power, which they can then use to you know, consolidate their position at the top of a kind of hierarchical pyramid. Whereas violence has to be constantly controlled and mandated lest it tear down those very structures. So when someone attains power, they then want to contain violence so that they are the only ones that have control over it. Because if violence ran rampant, there wouldn't be the possibility for hierarchies to form. So in this way, power consolidates identities because it's conducive to these hierarchies. Where in his words, power achieves a certain order by establishing differences and borders, whereas violence, in contrast, dissolves borders, which I take to mean like identities, difference, um, you know, categories. And in this society, he says that power is erased while violence is maintained. And capitalism is the really the best example of this, where you know the capitalist system goes wherever it wants. It doesn't follow hierarchies or orders or principles or anything like that. It just goes wherever. Uh, so this births what he calls the microphysics of violence or microphysical violence. So I want to mention just briefly another kind of key, couple of key terms that he mentions here. Where when there was a distinction between self and other, you know, in this kind of um, macrophysical, these macrophysical forms, he describes that as the immunological form, which I touched on briefly, and that is how, uh, in coming up against another, you actually develop certain uh, new tactics of dealing with others, which implies a certain self-growth, like you you make yourself immune to their threats, to their challenge to you by growing, by internalizing some of them into you. Now, the post-immunological society gets rid of all that because we have effectively inoculated ourselves. There is no threat. So we are, you know, we're going to talk about Baudrillard more in the second half, but I will just say it now that Baudrillard talks about this much better in my view. But this is the post-immunological is when we've effectively gotten rid of all threats. And so we are even more susceptible to possible uh, invasion even though he says that's not going to happen because it's all pure positivity so we lose that capacity to transform to adapt and evolve and that pushes us here into the second half uh, the microphysics of violence and I'm debating whether or not now I think I'll just continue because it's it's pretty short like and he's he's pretty repetitive Han so it, anyways let's just blast through it so this is chapter six now systematic violence so, here he introduces what he calls structural symbolic violence, that is violence imminent to the system and therefore goes unnoticed, and it's therefore internalized by all of us. So, this can assume the form of like injustice, where injustice is a form of violence that doesn't actually have like someone pointing a gun at you. It's just a violence that is conducted by the system without any clear actors, any clear kind of puppet masters. And we are all subject to this. So he takes aim at Zizek here, Slavoj Zizek, who says that uh, negativity kind of still permeates the system. And he gives the example of how like women have unrealistic or internalized unrealistic beauty standards. So they undergo surgery um, to kind of fit these unrealistic beauty standards. That And then Han responds in a kind of tasteless way by saying that, oh, well, men have to do this too because, like, because of like fitness culture. And it's like Han these aren't the same things like these are these are very different forms of uh, self-surveillance kind of self-discipline that should be treated as such and it's kind of ironic because like Han is chastising the system for you know getting rid of all difference getting rid of all peculiarity in favor of a kind of a homogenous totalizing you know worldview but then he seems to do that too like he erases all context like, he, he almost seems to be a spokesperson for this system at times. That was, yeah, I'll stand by that. Someone take me take me to, to you know, take me on if you, if you disagree. I'd like to hear what you have to say. But what happens here is that systemic violence turns everyone into captives, which just, it rubs me the wrong way because, like, people suffer differently than other people. Like, people suffering from... Racism or from police brutality, police violence, it's different for different people. And it seems wrong to just say, oh, well, we all experience violence, so therefore we're all screwed. Like as though then that means there's nothing we should be doing about the specific forms of violence being conducted against specific people. But, anyways, and there is, and it makes the case that there's no more distinction between oppressed and oppressor. But I'll let you sit in that and either you'll agree or you'll get mad at me, but. I'd like to hear about it. That puts us into Chapter Seven, the microphysics of power. So here he starts by outlining Foucault's tracing of difference between sovereign and disciplinary power, or disciplinary society. So he criticizes the early Foucault, who believes that, um, who thought that power, the disciplinary, was in the disciplinary society, and that power could be unstructured, and that power essentially desubjectifies. Now this is wrong because and I was so curious as to why where he's getting this from and he's just getting this from the history of sexuality volume 1 in Foucault. When Foucault's big thing is about how the disciplinary society actually makes subjects. It doesn't de-subjectify. It turns people into productive subjects. So I don't really know what Han is on about here. But anyways, he says it. He also says that uh, Foucault's kind of archetypal disciplinary institutions like jails, schools, hospitals, factories, they presuppose too much negativity that is unseen in the present-day formations. So Han opposes those old disciplinary institutions with the present positive ones or the achievement ones like shopping malls or fitness centers or yoga yoga classes or anything like that. So our prison for him is called Freedom. And all its ailments are depression, or some of its ailments are depression, burnout, or like ADHD. Which is like fair, but like Han, the jails and schools and factories and death camps still exist. I don't know, he just, he's ignoring that and looking at the the other thing. I, I get it. That puts us here into chapter 8, the violence of positivity. And he just starts at this chapter by making this claim that violence is kind of residual negativity. He just kind of mentions that and then moves on. And now he takes the time to take aim at Baudrillard. Uh, and if anyone's spent any time on this channel, you'll know that I've read every single one of Baudrillard's books. I've done most of them on here. In fact, all of the kind of books, I think, uh, on this channel. And he hes I think he's fair in his criticism of Baudrillard. And I'll get into the kind of a nitty-gritty right now. So in Baudrillard's late work, he kind of takes the time to consider two present diseases, um, and they are cancer and AIDS. And for Baudrillard, these two diseases are are extensions of a system that sees endless proliferation as its end goal. And he associates that with cancer, with the endless proliferation of cells, and how we turn on ourselves here, where we are these kind of like, we've effectively erased otherness, and we are these pure cells. And so our bodies turn on ourselves, and that is, for him, kind of how AIDS relates to this formulation, because it is the body, you know, turning in on itself. But we could also put this another way, where in the case of AIDS, uh, it's a consequence of our inability to develop an immune response to, to, to an other because we have erased all association with otherness and he's using them as metaphors to understand this world problematically like I will absolutely admit um, so Han says that these are just repackaged negativities that is AIDS and cancer and it doesn't grasp that, that today all negativity has vanished so like yeah I guess that's fair in that Baudrillard maintains that m- there's still some negativity but that's what he wants to do That from as early as, uh, I would say, his book, Symbolic Exchange and Death, and certainly Seduction, Baudrillard is trying to say that these negativities are always going to be with us, but we have to learn how to see them as they will manifest themselves differently and that we can't fully exercise or conjure them away. So I think that Baudrillard would hear Han shrug his shoulders and then walk away because he's like, you just, I don't care, like anyways so one of the other things that comes out in Baudrillard's late work is the idea of a singularity where Baudrillard laments the formation of globalization and finds that the kind of last bastions of hope are found in these singularities which are just for him kind of perfect sites where, where just people are where everyone is just kind of perfect in their own way all cultures are perfect in their own way and he's just trying to find a kind of it's kind of his cosmopolitanism coming out but not nearly as uh, brutal as Derrida's or as um, you know liberal as Derrida's uh, but Hahn says that you know these singularities can't even exist because they imply too much negativity. And then he ends his kind of critique of Baudrillard by saying uh, that it might be that all this positivity is driving the system to its collapse. And I have a lot more to say on this because I, I like Baudrillard a lot um, and it's it just seems like Hahn is I, I, f- I feel like Hahn, read Baudrillard and was like, shit, that was, that's my argument. I better find some kind of shitty way to to draw a distinction between himself and, and myself. But anyways, that's just me. It's obviously more nuanced than that, but yeah. So here, chapter nine, the violence of transparency. So he identifies the present call for transparency that is in like politics or economics in accordance with the kind of principle of positivity. So the transparent for him turns everything into the same and transparency forecloses engagement with other because there's nothing to learn from the other because we already see everything it's a kind of pornography of um and the and the obscenity of hyper visibility uh and it, it it threatens politics that relies on secrecy and so it removes that capacity to engage with others because they might have something to offer you because under full transparency you already know everything there is to know whereas someone like baudiard is like no like, there is always going to be a residual mystery. We will never fully kind of demystify the world. That's just not going to happen. We like to think we will, but, you know, the real is always going to kind of rear its head. You know, reality is going to sneak back in uh, to, to make us privy again of the mysteries of the world. And that puts us here into chapter 10. The medium is the mass age. So this is playing on McLuhan's phrase, the medium is the message. And here he considers the way that language is used by the Achievement Society to proliferate over communication that causes spamification. So we might think of things here like YouTube videos, <laughs> comments, tweets, you know, Instagram posts, all these things that kind of burst forth with language that essentially nullify all language. It renders it meaningless. And how all for him, like all kind of virtual communication online. Is just a way not to engage with otherness, but for us to affirm ourselves. It's all about ourselves, putting ourselves out there, our opinions out there, to find maybe at best other people whose views already match us. Hence, you know, the existence of echo chambers. And he associates tweets and blogging and all that and ads with with garbage. So it's kind of like the pollution of the uh, of the internet sphere that mirrors our pollution of the world. And this is the mass age, you know, mass consumption, mass production, everything like that. And here that pushes us into, I'm sorry this is going so quick, but he's just so repetitive that it's not, I don't really need to be repeating all these things over and over again. Uh, chapter 11 here, rhizomatic violence. So in response to totalitarian overcoding, and this is coming out of the Deleuze and Guattari's language, um, Completely deterritorialized coding kind of takes place, and it can be seen as liberating. So the tyrant in Deleuze and Guattari overcodes things, you know, with its own significance. But then deterritorialization, a kind of decoding, might appear to be a liberation, a freedom from that overcoding. So Hahn charges Deleuze and Guattari, but he only mentions Deleuze, for celebrating this. And that for Hahn, the idea of the schizophrenic that Deleuze and Guattari lionize... To some extent, and it's much more nuanced than Hahn is laying out here, but anyways, the schizophrenic for him merely mirrors capitalist deterritorialized flows and movements. And in his words, schizophrenic deterritorialization leads to the rhizomatic proliferation of the same, to accumulation of the positive. And Deleuze therefore fails to see the negative side of proliferation. But he does Like, I don't get it. Like, Deleuze also recognizes the problems here and how it needs to be kind of blasted into something new. But anyways, this is Han for us. Uh, Into chapter 12 now, the violence of the global. So now he takes aim at Hart and Negri, um, who transpose bourgeois proletarian class conflict to the present conflict between empire and multitude, where empire obviously stands in for the kind of... uh, you know, the jackals of capitalist production, you know, those people accruing the most profit, and the multitude being those working-class populations that are, uh, you know, extracted from various parts of the world or kind of brought up into the capitalist economy, you know, to suck out excess surplus value or labor from them. And Hahn believes that this is an outdated transposition, that is, the transposition of the proletarian um, worker uh, dialectic onto this empire multitude one uh, because it relies on vanished categories, that is, categories that have disappeared, like class, where he says that these these distinctions don't exist anymore because we are all subject to this kind of overall system in the same way. And no one can really be said to rule now in the capitalist economy because, you know, we're all implicated. Or in his words, everyone involved in the capitalist production process is simultaneously victim and perpetrator echoing his earlier statement that we're all oppressed and oppressor. So additionally, there's little opportunity then for collective action, because we don't have these kind of common stakes. We're all too involved with ourselves. So Hart and Negri propose, following Deleuze and Guattari, that the system must be accelerated, um, because that's like, you know, deterritorialization might bring an end to this, this system, which for Han would have catastrophic consequences because it would be it would probably push us into a more uh f- so-called free or a more um de world and that puts us here into the last chapter chapter 13 titled homo liber which is kind of like free free human you know hom- homo freeness freeness free free uh, human and here he returns to Agamben again to reiterate his problem with Agamben thinking there can still be negativity in the form of like a sovereign uh, and that the, how this can't happen now. And how the terror of positivity is a greater threat than negativity for Han. At least with negativity, there was the possibility of a kind of immunological response that I mentioned earlier or that possibility for newness to emerge. Whereas for uh, in the Achievement Society, we have what's called like a homo liber where this homo liber like isn't actually free right that's a misnomer but this uh homo liber in, is both the internalized sovereign and homo sacre. so to just mention it briefly homo sacer and agamben homo soccer is the kind of sacrificial victim who is um holds a special place within the world the kind of economy of symbolic exchange so that they can, their death will mark a kind of newness in that in that system. So we are both uh, the executioner and the victim and the and the sacrificed for um, Han. And this is something that uh, another thinker, Roberto Colasso, Colasso, who's my probably my favorite writer, um, takes this stuff up. And he's probably the, in my mind, the best philosopher you've never heard of that you should definitely go check out if you have you know the time or Anything. So for a Gombe, homo sacer is reduced to bare life. So they're, you know, all kind of impulses, desires, and anything are stripped away and they are just reduced to the basic necessities to live um, and are therefore free to be killed. So we are all this now. We're reduced to our bare impulses, uh, not anything else. This is why, you know, we strive for pleasure and feeling good instead of meaningful, you know, emotional or social connections. And then to conclude, I just want to read the last line where he says that the hominous sacri of the Achievement Society have another characteristic that sets them apart from those of the Society of Sovereignty. They are impossible to kill, so they can't be sacrificed like homo sacre. Their lives are like those of the undead. They are too alive to die and are too dead to live. So there's kind of liminal space between being dead and alive, you know, and the zombie parable, the zombie... Uh, analogy certainly works here you know we are just shop consume mindlessly uh, to our hearts content so that's Han I think it's pretty clear I have some problems with it uh, and this is like one of his short books I haven't read anything else so I could be like you know I should read more before I really criticize it but I'd love to hear if anyone has any of their own criticisms because um, yeah I'm sure you guys know a lot more than I do Uh, But on that note, take care.